0: Sanctuary, political asylum, Central American refugees, Los Angeles has heard this before and probably heard it first long ago from a man of the cloth. The Catholic priest who defied the law and bucked the church hierarchy to turn Los Angeles' oldest church, La Placita, Into a sanctuary for Central American refugees, also made the country turn its attention to the plight of all Latinos coming here for help. Mario T. Garcia is a professor of history at UC Santa Barbara, whose new biography is Father Luis Olivares Faith Politics and the Origins of the Sanctuary Movement in Los Angeles. He tracks the dramatic life of the priest who went from a company man in the Claritian Order. To a pot stirrer and feather ruffler who walked arm in arm with Cesar Chavez, led LA community organizers to face down corporations and civic leaders, and challenged the Reagan administration itself. 25 years after Olivares' death, his story and his role are as current as the day's tweets. His story is a remarkable and dramatic arc because he grew up poor in Texas. He joined the Claretian order, and in short order, he was pretty high, wide, and handsome as the treasurer for the order, and wearing Gucci shoes and black silk suits and eating expensive dinners with investors that may have helped the order to prosper.
1: And he liked that lifestyle. He liked being wined and dying. And he liked having the power and the influence as a treasurer, which was the second highest position in the Claritian order. Uh, some people ask me, how does a Catholic priest you know, dress nicely, you know? And I said, well, how about a uh, black silk suit? And how about a black shirt with French cuffs? Years later, someone referred to him as uh, Father GQ.
0: Becoming a priest was one of the few pathways out of poverty for a lot of young Latino men at the time. But why did he want to enter the priesthood?
1: His grandmother and his aunt helped raise him along with his father, they were very, very religious, very Catholic, especially the grandmother. But I think deeply down, he did feel he had a a vocation to become a priest. He admired the priest of his parish. And in fact, even as a young boy, he played saying the Mass at home. You know, he would be the the priest, and then his siblings would be, uh, some of the boys would be the altar boys, and the girls would be part of the congregation.
0: He was prospering within the Church as the treasurer of the Claritians, there comes an almost biblical-like conversion, like St. Paul on the road to Damascus, where he looks at himself, he looks around, and sees the world a little differently, and his own role very differently. He says
1: his conversion came in 1975, when for the first time he met Cesar Chavez. And he said, that changed my life And he just felt that the uh, influence of Caesar and what Caesar was doing with the farm workers and dealing with the poor in the rural areas just reminded him of what he really should be doing. He begins to, first of all, work very much with the farm workers. He will support the, the great boycott, the lettuce boycott. And he became very, very close to Caesar. They were very close throughout the rest of their two lives. And then he became involved. In the community in East Los Angeles, he became the pastor of Soledad Church in East L.A. And there he worked with a Salolinsky organization that developed in the mid to late 80s.
0: Saul Alinsky, the Chicago organizer.
1: Yes, and it was called the United Neighborhoods Organization. He wasn't involved up until he meets Caesar, and as I say, that's what he says was his conversion.
0: He became pastor of La Placita, Our Lady Queen of the Angels Church the oldest church in Los Angeles, in 1981, and saw a different part of Los Angeles and people with different needs from what perhaps he might have known before.
1: This series of incidents has served to bring the
0: war in Central America to our own doorstep.
1: This is another transformation, in some ways another conversion, because as he comes to La Placita, many of the Central American refugees are also coming into Los Angeles and to other parts of the United States. They're fleeing the Civil War in El Salvador, in Guatemala, repressive government, death squads in El Salvador, repressive military, and all of which were supported by the United States. These were the client states of the United States. These were the classic banana republics. And so these civil wars and these uh, these states of repression just began to force more and more people out of those countries. But many people were fleeing these countries, as they're fleeing today. You know, these were refugees. They were classic political refugees. At the same time that Father Olivares is at La Pasita Church, so he encounters them, and he says, you know, we've got to work with these. They are children of God, and we have to help them in any way we can. He was very opposed to the Reagan administration in the 1980s, their position was, very similar to the current administration, that these people fleeing were not legitimate political refugees, that they were in fact, quote-unquote, illegal aliens, coming to take jobs from real Americans, all of which was nonsense. This was the first church in Los Angeles, the first in California, it may have been the first in the United States, for sanctuary. Sanctuary goes back to specifically Catholic history in the Middle Ages. This was a house of God, and it was protection. So this became the citadel for sanctuary, the citadel for justice, these quarters right here.
0: So in December 1985, on the day of the festival of the Virgin of Guadalupe, he says that La Placita is then a sanctuary, for these people fleeing the violence in Central America. What were the consequences of this declaration?
1: They organized for that, and they worked with a lot of other religious leaders, both Protestant and Jewish, and they decided that they will do public sanctu- declare public sanctuary on December 12, 1985. So what it meant was now saying our church is now a public sanctuary, in terms of supporting these people, and it is not a church that immigration should in any way invade or come into. So it was further taking on the Reagan administration. It was defying immigration law.
0: The Los Angeles Archbishop, Roger Mahoney, had been sympathetic to farm worker causes when he was in the Central Valley. One of the nicknames his critics gave him was Red Roger, How did all this settle out with the church and the church hierarchy?
1: Well, that's part of the drama. Mahoney supported the refugees. He came from that background as Bishop of Stockton, worked with the farm workers, was sympathetic to Latinos. The difference is is that he and the other U.S. Catholic bishops, at least as an organization, did not support the concept of sanctuary because it was breaking the law, it was defying the law. They felt that that was going to and they didn't want to alienate the Reagan administration to that extent. And there begins, then, a the period of tension between Olivares and Mahoney. Mahoney felt that if the law was wrong, as Olivares said, then the law needed to be changed. Olivares said if the law is wrong, it needs to be defied because there's a higher law, that's God's law, and that's what I obeyed. Mahoney came to the LA Archdiocese knowing that the future of the Catholic Church was it's Latino Catholics. He wanted to be that leader only when he arrived in 1985 to realize they already had a leader, and that was Father Luis Olivares. So I think there was a sense of rivalry.
0: Did Cardinal Mahoney talk to you for the book?
1: No, and it's unfortunate because I wanted to get his side of the story of that relationship. It's not that Cardinal Mahoney was against the refugees or against undocumented immigrants. It's just that he felt the concern of his position, the constraint of the church as a whole, as an institution.
0: As a practical and logistical matter, sanctuary was a very difficult thing for Father Olivares to pull off. In fact, my old colleague Ruben Martinez suggested, as you say in the book, that La Placita functioned better as a symbol than an actual shelter and social agencies.
1: Well, Father Olivares And La Placita Church was, of course, limited just in terms of space and resources. One has to remember that by the end of the 1980s, over a million Salvadorians alone had come into the United States. Half had come to Los Angeles. So there's no way that La Placita, as one church, could possibly, you know, deal with all of them and to help them. But so, yes, they did what they could materially. There were Protestant churches and Jewish communities synagogues that did declare public sanctuary, but they didn't do the material kind of help that Olivares was doing. But also, you're right, it's a symbol to to tell people, to show people, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, not only here in in L.A., but in their home countries, that there was one church in L.A., one Catholic church that stood for them, that was there as a symbol to help them. Father Olivares worked very hard to develop what I call in the book a pan-Latino consciousness, and I think he very successfully did develop that pan-Latino consciousness. And I think, overall, they were able to get the parishioners, the Mexican parishioners, to to also see that, yes, they had to be part of sanctuary. They had to support the refugees.
0: The Immigration and Naturalization Services, it was then called, was not, of course, happy about the sanctuary idea. Did ICE, did INS ever show up and take people away?
1: No, not at La Placita at one point they did an investigation of Olivares and Kennedy and La Placita to make sure that they were not consciously bringing in the refugees across the border. Immigration was not going to go so far as to publicly raid into La Placita. Immigration Naturalization Services would have lost the public battle. I mean, the publicity would have uh, just uh, been overwhelmingly against that kind of an action, especially with all of the attention that La Placita and Father Olivares had been receiving about their role in sanctuaries.
0: Father Olivares was very canny about PR as well.
1: And he enjoyed speaking to the media. In fact, part of the tension of Mahoney and Olivares at one meeting, supposedly, uh, Mahoney said to Olivares, I mean, he said, Luisa, uh, do you have to call the media every time you brush your teeth? And uh, Olivares said, well... No, your ex ex Not every time, <laughs> so. Uh, but he was a media star, and he enjoyed it. He was articulate. Uh, he could speak both English and Spanish. So he he courted the Spanish language media because he knew he needed that media to reach out, in particular, to the Central American people throughout the city and other Spanish speaking Latinos.
0: He was diabetic, and he died in 1993 of AIDS after having been diagnosed in 1990, and You spend some time on this in the book because the word that was put out was that he contracted AIDS in Central America from infected needles. This was at a time when AIDS was still stigmatized and it was seen as the gay disease that mattered so much then. It doesn't seem to be so much now except as a symbol, which his entire life really was.
1: You're a public person and Perhaps you made it, maybe, maybe you should go public before it, it, it leaks out. And that's when he agreed that he would be interviewed by the Los Angeles Times. That was the story that he told. It was the story that the Croatians told, and that was the public story. Some believed it, some did not believe it. But I think there were some people who felt that either way, it was going to hurt him and it might be used against. Appearance was in 1992 in January to celebrate the peace accord in El Salvador, something that he had been working for for so long in the 1980s. He then died in March of 1993.
0: So now, given the perspective of 25 years since his death and what's going on in this country apropos of sanctuary, apropos of political asylum. Where do you think he stands as a figure in this story?
1: I maintain that he is one of the great political and religious leaders in this country in the second half of the 20th century. I think what he did in the sanctuary movement was remarkable, both in terms of what they concretely were able to do, but symbolically they were able to do. And on top of that, also the key spokesman against the policies of the United States in Central America and uh, what he was doing there to further the killing of people and the torturing of people. He was a voice of the voiceless. And I think his story is important for us today because what he did and what the sanctuary movement did in the 80s should tell us that people in the past have stood up against injustices, against the repression of refugees and immigrants, as is happening today. And hopefully his story will give people the kind of, Courage and fortitude, and a sense that we can do it as well. His story just gives people further inspiration that yes, uh, we we can push back. We can we don't have to just uh, stand by and allow efforts to to violate all of, many of our democratic rights in this country. So I think that's what the Father Odivari stands for.
0: You think he's a better candidate for sainthood than Father Junipero Serra, the founder of the missions?
1: Yes, absolutely. Head and shoulders, I think that what he was what he, what he did in his life, what he did especially in the eighties for the refugees and the undocumented immigrants was saint like.
0: Well, Mario Garcia, thank you so much. Well thank you, Pat. <laughs> Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. The audio moments of the actor and activist Martin Sheen and Father Luis Olivares are from the documentary The Faithful Revolution, Vatican II. The music is a Salvadoran traditional song, La Golondrina, by Mariachi Vargas de Calitlan, and a traditional Cuban song, Guantanamera, favorite of Olivares is sung by Joan Baez. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast.